Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Genesis 24 through 27. And there's a lot of doctrines here. And I want to jump right into chapter 24. This is the story of Abraham seeking a wife for Isaac. So those of you who are looking for an eternal companion, there is a lot of wonderful information here to help you in your pursuit of an eternal companion. I believe wholeheartedly that the most important thing to Heavenly Father is helping us each find an eternal companion. That decision is more important than anything else we do in mortality. Therefore, it's more important to Heavenly Father than anything else. The counter to that is this. There is nothing more essential to our enemy than interfering with that process and messing that process up. And he has set all sorts of pitfalls for us to fall into as we pursue an eternal companion. If he can pair us with the wrong type of person, if he can mess up our dating, he can mess up our marriage. And if he can mess up our marriage, he can mess up our godhood. And just if it's a resource, if it's valuable to you, I teach a class at the Institute on the pitfalls we run into as we date and look for eternal companions. If that's something that would be a blessing to you, we're going to put a link in the show notes to some previous classes where there are recordings you can listen to. I just have watched way too many people I love fall into some significant pitfalls when it comes to dating. So, Bryce, do I have to be an institute student to get access to that? You don't have to to be an institute student. If you'd like to take the class at the Institute of the University of Utah, please come sign up for it. Yeah, but I think most of our listeners are probably not in Utah. Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity to come in and share with the other people in the class. But if you're not in Utah and you're still interested in this class, the website is called thingsofmysoul.org. It's my own website. It's just where I put recordings you can listen to. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And we'll put a link in the show notes. I'm just trying to provide as many resources as we possibly can, because this is a critical topic, finding an eternal companion. So I'm going to walk through Genesis chapter 24 with that in mind, some messages to those who are looking for an eternal companion. The second way to look at Genesis 24 is if you have found an eternal companion, there's a great lesson here on how to be an eternal companion. So let's see if we can look at both of those. So Abraham does not want Isaac to marry among the Canaanites. Remember, he left the land of his fathers, and he's a stranger in Canaan, and he's surrounded by people that don't necessarily believe what Abraham and his family believes. And he's concerned that Isaac is limited to the Canaanites around him. So he sends his servant back to his old country, his family's land, to find a spouse. Now, I know there's some concern here about choosing for Isaac, and a lot of cultures have had arranged marriages. And I don't necessarily want to go into the topic 
of arranged marriage. But Abraham gets his servant to swear an oath. You won't choose a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites. It's very important to Abraham because he understands how important a spouse is in the eternal consequences. So swear with me, you won't choose a wife from the Canaanites, that you'll go back to my previous land. And then he says just one of the most beautiful things, and any one of you who are listening to this, no matter your age, if you're looking for an eternal companion, I want you to hear what the Lord says through Abraham to the servant. Verse 7, the Lord God of heaven which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and which spake unto me and swear unto me, saying, unto thy seed will I give this land. Ready? He will send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. He shall send his angel before thee. Now, let me just show you some really powerful messages that I would encourage you to hold on to. See, Latter-day Saints have a tendency to panic when they get to a certain age. I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to find an eternal companion. Hold on to these promises. After the whole episode with Rebecca occurs, the servant is going to say to himself in verse 27, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And again, there's that promise. So Abraham says, the angel's going to go before you. And the servant says, the Lord led me here. And then as he's retelling the story to Rebecca's family, he says in verse 40, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with thee and prosper thy way. That's the servant's rendition of what Abraham said to him on the way. But I love the addition. The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel from before thee and prosper thy way. And then again, in the retelling of the story after the fact, he says in verse 48, I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, which had led me in the right way. So I love that those phrases are repeated, and I loved combining them, that the Lord will prepare the way by sending an angel, he will prosper the way, and he will lead you in the right way. Now, I want to clarify what is said in verse 14. The servant says, I will give thy camel drink also. Let this be the same that thou hast appointed for my servant Isaac. I don't think we should conclude that the Lord has chosen your spouse. The gospel of Jesus Christ seems to suggest that that is not the case, that we are not destined to one particular person and you have to go find them. There are lots of right choices out there. Numerous matches that you could choose as an eternal companion. But I believe strongly that this is your choice, not Heavenly Father's choice. This is your exercise of agency with His assistance. So there's a balance here. I don't don't think we should think that the Lord's going to send me to the right person. The Lord's going to send me in the right direction. The Lord's going to prosper the way so that I cross paths with the right kind of people. 
And then I need to choose which of those right people I marry. I think maybe the danger would be if it's all the Lord, then we blame the failure of the marriage on God. Whereas I think the Lord in his wisdom says, well, do you love her? I remember the story of Joseph Philly McConkie where he was talking about getting married and he asked his dad, you know, I'm praying and I'm praying. And his dad says, well, do you love her? And he says, well, yeah. And then his dad says, well, then marry her, right? I mean, is this there, is your choice. Is there some of that going on yeah. there, you think? It can't be all the Lord and it can't be all us. So there's a balance here between the Lord will prosper us in the way, he will send the angel before us, he will help us make right decisions to get to the right place. But when we get to that right place, it really is going to fall on us to say, who do you choose? Who do you choose? So I love that little balance that it's not all on my shoulders. And to all of you searching for a companion, I would say, it's not all on your shoulders. Trust that the Lord will prosper you in that way. Don't put limits on him and say, well, it has to happen by this age or at this time. Let the Lord do his part, but you do your part. There's the balance. So Abraham says to the servant, the Lord's going to go before you. The Lord's going to send an angel. So the servant goes out and comes up with an ingenious test of how to find Isaac's companion. I think there is more in this test than we sometimes realize after the first reading. The servant's test is this. O Lord God of my master Abraham, this is verse 12 of chapter 24, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. Let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I say, hey, can I have a drink of water? Let down thy pitcher that I may drink. And she says, go ahead and drink, and I will give thy camel drink also. Let that be the same person for Isaac." In other words, I think there were three possibilities, three types of people that Rebecca could have been. I'm going to call them one, two, and three. Person one, option number one, is Rebecca could have said, no, get your own water. I'll get my water, you get your water. The ones in life are focused completely on themselves. And if Rebecca had been completely focused on herself, then this servant knew she would not be a match for Isaac. I think that's because the servant knew what kind of man Isaac was. And a woman focused completely on herself would not be a match for Isaac, who he knew was not focused on himself. Option number two is Rebecca could have said, Okay, that's legit. I have something to draw with. You're thirsty. You can't draw the water. I can. So let's focus on what's fair and even, and I will give you drink. That's reasonable. I think those are the twos. I think the twos kind of play the game, I'll scratch your back so that you scratch mine. Let's go to the dancing recital, which you want to watch, so that you'll let me go to the football game. And sometimes we play these games with our spouse. I want to get what I want to get. So how do I do that? I know I'll give her what she wants so that I get what I want. 
That's a level two marriage. And level two marriages are constantly playing these games with each other. How do I get what I want to get? Well, I know. I have to give you something that you want in order to get something that I want. There's a great episode of Everybody Loves Raymond where Raymond wants to go on a golf retreat. But there is no way Deborah's going to let him go golfing. And so it's Christmas time. So Ray gets Deborah this incredible pot and pan set to smooth her and butter her up and just blow her away. And then he's going to say, Oh, by the way, I want to go golfing in Myrtle Beach. <laughs> it's classic. That's a two level marriage. What does she do? Well, she says, Oh, of course, you should go. go. It, anyway, it's a great episode, and it turns against them, and it shows you the fallacy of the manipulation game. So the servant knew that someone who plays that game of give so I can get is not going to be a match for Isaac. So option number three for Rebecca is someone that is not focused on herself, is not focused on getting what I want by giving you something that you want. The test here is that Rebecca's just simply focused on other people. Three-level marriages are when each one is focused on the other person's happiness. So notice how Rebecca passes the test here. Verse 17, the servant says, Let me, I pray thee, have a little drink of water. And watch her response. Drink, my Lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And then without him any no, ever saying anything, when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. He's got 10 camels there. And she says, I'm not only going to give you a drink, your camels are thirsty. Your camels are suffering. Let me help the camels. And I'm going to provide enough water so that they can fill themselves with water. By the way, let's just talk about what 10 camels drink. Yeah. Some estimates are putting this at 200 gallons of water, Whoa. which I can only, I mean, I've obviously never watered a camel, but it's a lot of water. This was a woman who really was truly focused on other people's happiness. And she seems to do it gladly. She hastens, she runs. By the way, her hastening is kind of a recollection of Genesis 18, 6 and 7, when Abraham hastens to the three visitors that come under the tree and give him the revelation that he shall have a son. And I think the author of this text is playing with these ideas. What kind of person is she? Yeah, it's an urgency. You need help, and I really want to help you. Yeah. And so in verse 20, she hastens and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again. It's very important to her that the camels get what they need. That's a three-level person. Now, I think what's underlying all of this is that the servant knows what kind of person Isaac is. Isaac is the kind of person that is focused on others, that his greatest desire is going to be to bring happiness to his wife. That's the kind of person Isaac's going to be, and the servant knows it. Therefore, the best match for that kind of person is someone whose sole desire is to bring her husband happiness. Two people focused on each other. 
And I would suggest that Heavenly Father is that kind of man. He is the kind of man who is completely focused on the happiness of his wife. And I guarantee he married a woman who is completely focused on his happiness, each person focusing on the other person. Now, can you imagine the danger of a three marrying a one? A person focused on someone else and the other person focused on themselves. That would burn them out. That is not going to be a positive match. Can you imagine two ones together? They may live in the same house, but they are walking down parallel paths, both of them consumed with their own desires. Can you imagine a pair of twos? I want something, so I'm going to give you something so that I get something in exchange. And it's always a game. They always play a game to get what they want to get. But can you imagine a marriage of threes? Clearly, two threes in a marriage is the best combination. Two people focused on each other's happiness. So let me illustrate the three with how they watch television, okay? A pair of ones will fight over the remote. Now, he'll grab the remote and turn it to the football game, which he wants to watch. She'll grab the remote and turn it to the dancing competition, which she wants to watch. And they fight over what they're going to watch. I want to watch this, so give me the remote. Each person focused on themselves. Now, here's how twos fight over the remote. Ready? He grabs the remote and thinks, oh, the football game is on in an hour. How do I watch the football game? I know. So he turns it to the dancing competition right now so that she can watch the dancing competition, knowing that what he really wants is to watch the football game, and he'll be able to watch the football game in peace if he watches the dancing competition right now. Now here's how threes fight over the remote. He grabs the remote and turns it to the dancing competition. She grabs the remote and turns it to the football game. Both of them saying, I know what my spouse wants to watch, and that's what I want to watch. I want to watch the program that will make my spouse happy. That's a 3-3 marriage. And that kind of marriage where they're both focused on the other person, that can last for eternity because they want it to last for eternity. I am seeking your happiness, and that's my greatest happiness, is to seek your happiness. So if you want a 3-3 marriage, where do you begin? I would suggest we all begin like this story began. I don't think the servant looked for a three and then went back and tried to help Isaac become a three. I think the servant was looking for a three because he knew Isaac was a three. I would suggest if you're looking for a three-three marriage, be a three. Practice now. Become the kind of person that, like Jesus, is focused on others. He was never focused on himself. He was always focused on others. How could he make them happy? 
and therein is the greatest happiness. Be a three, and then you will naturally attract other threes and can marry a three. If you're married and you're finding that the marriage is not a three-three marriage, then I would encourage you to become a three and inspire your spouse to become a three as well. But don't do it hoping that you'll change them by your good behavior. Yeah. Don't force it. Inspire them. I've met couples who say, I'll change when my spouse changes and then neither change. And I think that's also destructive. So ask yourself this question, what do I have control over? And the only thing I really have control over most times is my attitude and kind of my disposition. I can't control my spouse. I can't control my children, but I can control me. Love your spouse. And being loved by someone who genuinely loves you is an inspiring thing and quite often inspires us to love them. Love them and focus on their happiness. That is my greatest desire is to make you happy today. So I love this little story about Rebecca. And so Rebecca passes the test. Rebecca is very focused on others. So he goes into Rebecca's family, tells him the story. Everyone can see that this is a good match. Go ahead. And then they want Rebecca to stick around for 10 days. And the servant says, oh, please, the Lord has clearly blessed me. Can I go now? And I love what they say. They say in verse 58, let's call Rebecca. Let's actually ask her, what does she want to do? So they call Rebecca and say, wilt thou go with this man? And she said, I will go. And she went. And I love as soon as she sees him and he sees her, I think there's a magic moment there. Isaac went out in verse 63 and lifted up his eyes and saw them coming. In 64, Rebecca lifted up her eyes and saw Isaac. I think there's a magic that happens when two selfless people come together and love each other. So verse 67, Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. He loved her. Now, that's a beautiful story, and I hope that it inspires you to know that God is going to prosper us in the way as we search for eternal companions. I know for some of you that is a very long and difficult journey, but I still testify that God will prosper you in the way. We've got a long time. Don't feel like it has to be done by such and such a time. There's nothing more important to him than helping you with this decision. So trust him, but be willing to accept the responsibility to do your part. And part of that is to be a three. If you want to attract a three, be a three. I love it. That is a really good reading of Genesis 24 as far as, okay, what's the moral? Like, what can I take and apply in my life? Bryce, I really think you nailed, like, here's the story and here's what we can pull out of it. And so if I was teaching a Sunday school class or a seminary class, I think that is the relevant stuff that people that are in the class are really going to be concerned with. And I love how you do that. Now, before we move on, I just want to talk a little bit about backing up and looking at the big picture. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about archetypes 
or figures or images. And I'm going to channel a couple of authors that I think have had great impact on the way I look at the scriptures. And so the first one I want to mention is Bradley Kramer. Bradley Kramer wrote a book called Beholding the Tree of Life, a rabbinic approach to the Book of Mormon. And Bradley Kramer is the one that talks a lot about the four levels of reading scripture that we can take when we approach these texts. You've got the Peshat, which is like, what's happening? Like, what's the literal reading of this? And the next level is Ramez, and that's this idea of it's a hidden meaning or what's the allegory? What are some things that we can pull out of it that maybe is just not obvious at the first take? And then Darash, which is what you just did, which is hey, how can we apply this? What's a good sermon that we can pull out of this or the moral? And then finally, the the fourth level is sod, which is the mystical meaning or the meaning that helps us approach God or what's connected to the temple. And another couple authors are Stephen Ricks and LeGrand Baker. They wrote a book called Who Shall Send to the Hill of the Lord? And that book has really impacted how I read the Bible and how I look at the temple and how I see it through the lens of the Bible. And one of the things that Baker and Ricks introduce is this idea of three lenses to read the scriptures. The first lens is the text. Read the Bible but then look at it through another lens, which is the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon unlocks the Bible, but the third lens is the temple. And so if we take the temple and we overlay it with the Book of Mormon, and then we take those two lenses, and then we then look at the Bible, almost like you're going to the eye doctor, right? Now we're looking at the Bible through three lenses, the biblical text, the Book of Mormon, and the temple, we'll see things that we don't normally see. That's why the people that translated the Bible, they don't have the information that we have, those of us that have been endowed and been introduced to ideas of the temple. Another level is the Book of Mormon. Like once you have the Book of Mormon, the Bible, then you can see that the Book of Mormon is inspired commentary on the Bible. And that's what Bradley Kramer writes a lot about is that the authors of the Book of Mormon were writing midrash or commentary on the Bible. They were using the Bible and then they were expanding the Bible and they were writing about things that helped give incredible light to the things that were in the Bible that were fragmented, that were there, but they were there kind of in types and shadows, or they were there partially. And when I say Bible, I'm talking Old Testament. Another author is Friedrich Weinerup. He wrote a book called Roots of the Bible, and he writes about the Bible from the perspective of what are the types, and how can we take this text and see grander, larger patterns? And so the well is going to be a symbol connected to the temple. This idea of a source of water is going to be connected to the temple. And Rebecca is the embodiment of the feminine principle. Rebecca is the one who gets the vision. Rebecca is the driving force in the blessing of her son, Jacob. She's going to have a revelation from God. And so I think something important that's going to happen before she gets the revelation is the well. Now, the well in verse 61, it says that she arose and her damsels and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well. And then it's Lahai Roy. And that's a combination of a bunch of words. It's a combination of the word for well, but also it's a combination of a conjugation of the Hayah verb in Hebrew, which is the living one, and then a conjugation of the word to see. And it's a participle. And so what we have here in verse 62, uh, one translation would be the well of the living one seeing me. Now, the well is going to be a symbol connected to the temple. And there's going to be a lot of stuff happening here, and we've seen it before, with wells and visions. 
So he's coming from this well, but embedded in the text is this idea that Isaac is having a visionary experience. And then we get to this really obscure word in verse 63. It only happens one time in the entire Bible. And it's this word that's translated in verse 63 as meditate. It says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. And that word is an interesting word. And it's a little bit obscure because we don't know what it means because it only appears once in the Hebrew Bible. And so the present rendering is based on the Arabic, saha, which is to take a stroll. And another tradition has it that it's coming from this word in Hebrew, which means to talk. In some traditions, he's chatting with his friends because it's coming from this verb, which means to talk. But a third interpretation connects it to the Hebrew word for shrub. And so the idea is that he strolled among the plants or went to plant shrubs. But the probably the most popular rabbinic understanding of this verb is that he was out praying. And I actually like all of those. If you take the idea that he's strolling, that he's talking, that he's amongst the field, the shrubs, and that he's praying, and you combine all four meanings of the best, closest thing we can do with that word, and I think the translators did a really good job. I think they're, they're talking about him out meditating in the field. And I just want to put this here and say, that kind of sounds like Joseph Smith. It kind of puts Isaac in the realm of a visionary and that he's, verse 62, at the well of the living one who is seeing me. You see, that is a clue that we're going to get into later when we get into Exodus, where God reveals his name, that he is the being one and that he is the seeing one. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting wordplay happening here. That's one thing. But then we get into verse 64. She sees him, and then she comes off her camel. And then I love the verse, Bryce, where it says in 67, that he brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so it's this idea that she comforted him, and she brought him peace or she brought him joy. I really think some of the greatest joys in life for me are in my marriage and the things that that has blessed me with. And I know not everybody can be married. And so if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're like, oh, why are they talking about marriage? I also want to say, you know, the Lord knows what you're going through because the Lord is the one at the well who sees you. And hold on to those promises because there's nothing more important in eternity than that companionship eternal. And the Lord knows, and he's going to prosper your way. I just know it. I don't know how long the road is. I don't know how prickly it might be, but I know the Lord is going to prosper us in the journey and get us to the right places so that we interact with the people that we can then choose as eternal companions. Yeah. So Sarah has died. We get that referred to again in verse 67 of 24. So chapter 25 starts with this genealogical history of Abraham taking another wife because Sarah's passed on, and he takes the wife Keturah, and then we have a list of these names. Probably the one you're going to want to highlight is for sure Midian, because Midian's going to be a thread that we're going to pull on later when we get to Exodus. Verse 4 talks about the sons of Midian, 
And these were the children of Keturah. Now, that's a significant, because remember, the descendants of Abraham are heirs to his promises. They are heirs to the promises of place and priesthood and power and all of that. Jethro, from whom Moses receives the Melchizedek priesthood, is a descendant of Keturah. So he claims his patriarchal lineage through Keturah's sons. So we as a church have a tendency to think that Abraham's only descendants were Isaac and Ishmael, and that's not true. Abraham has numerous sons through Keturah, and they have a right to the Abrahamic blessings as well. Yeah, and I think this is fragmentary. We don't have the whole story. Uh, Nahum Sarna, who's a really good scholar on this stuff, he really gets into the weeds on this, and he says that the word for spices, keteret, is related to Keturah. And so his take is that these descendants that inhabit the area of Saudi Arabia, what we would call Saudi Arabia today, were involved in the spice trade. And he basically says that there was a universal and sustained demand in the ancient world for frankincense and myrrh and other aromatic resins and gums. And so his contention is because of her name, it's reasonable to assume that the key factor behind the organization of the Keturah tribes was the spice trade, because this was a precious commodity. And then he says, this actually has roots in history. It so happens that both biblical and Assyrian sources mention many of the names here listed as those of peoples or localities involved in this particular branch of international commerce. They controlled the trade routes that led to the Arabian Peninsula to the lands of the Fertile Crescent. And so there's some stuff in history going on with these individuals. And so whether or not this is literal history, you know, there's some argument, depending on who you read, that that the people that put this together are trying to figure out who are these people and one way to read this is these are the descendants of Abraham, just like the text says. Another way to read this is where did these people come from? Because they're writing this in the 6th century and their 7th century. Well, they're tracing their genealogical roots to Abraham because Abraham is the father of the faithful. So however you read it, but the way we'll read it is the sons of Midian are going to come up again. We are going to meet a son of Midian. His name is going to be Jethro, and he's going to pop up in Exodus. So that's interesting. Okay, so when you get to the rest of 25, if you look on the left column, if you're looking at paper, I'm on page 37. <laughs> Some of you are like, paper? Who uses paper? But I, I'm using it. Uh, chapter 25, verses like 9, all the way down to, to 19. So that chunk of text, we get into the sons of Ishmael. And it's an interesting word that it uses. It talks about that they have 12 sons. And then verse 16 says, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their towns and by their castles, 12 princes according to their nations. And there's no castles going on in the Hebrew text. The text does not say castles. The castles in this verse is a plural of tira. What we have here is a word for camp or dwelling. And in the Septuagint, which is the third century translation of the Hebrew into Greek, they use the word for dwellings. And my thinking is perhaps that the King James translators went with calling these castles because the individuals in this text are actually called princes, uh, the sarim, or in Greek, the archontes. That's a kind of a cool word. The head ones, the chiefs. And so they're chieftains. And so the King James translators are probably looking at this and say, well, if they're princes, princes and dukes and those kind of guys have castles. And so they put that in there. This is an example of like reading the text through your own cultural lens. And so I would just say, no, they have encampments or they have uh, places to dwell. I think that's probably a better way to read it.
Um, before we move on, do you want to talk about Abraham's death? Yeah. There is a fantastic doctrine here hidden in the text that I want to shout out. Verse 8, Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And then this incredible phrase, and was gathered to his people. Abraham died and was gathered to his people. Now, I know some people are going to read that and say, well, he was just buried with his ancestors. He was buried with his wife, Sarah. But I believe we're calling out a doctrine that we as Latter-day Saints take a lot of comfort in, that family gathers in the spirit world to welcome newcomers. Now, this week, my family welcomed a new grandson. My daughter just gave birth to another son, and we ran to the hospital, and we couldn't be up in the room, but we were there in the waiting room. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. And then shout out to Brittany and Baylor. And then that afternoon, her older sister ran to her house, and her younger sister was there. And then this weekend, we're all going to run, and we are gathering to welcome this little boy to our family. Now, do you understand what that doctrine suggests is that when loved ones die and we miss them, what's happening on the other side of the veil is a gathering to their people. Now, this is not the only place it comes up. If you'll go to Genesis 35, it's mentioned again when Isaac dies. This is Genesis 35, 29, and Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. So, Abraham dies and is gathered to his people. Isaac dies and was gathered unto his people. And again, we find the same phrase when Jacob dies. These are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in Genesis 49, Jacob is old and he's about to go. And he says in verse 29, he charged them and he said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers. And then we get verse 33, when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. I think that should bring comfort and peace to all of us, that just like we welcome newcomers into this world, that the dead are welcomed by their family, that there is a gathering, however painful the exit may be. There is a beautiful, wonderful reunion on the other side of the veil, and that the people we now miss because are gone are being gathered to their people. And there must be rejoicing when mothers meet sons and husbands meet wives and wives meet mothers. There's got to be a marvelous gathering if the first person you see as you walk through that veil into a scary new place is your family and they welcome you. I love that doctrine, Mike, and I think we should shout it out every time we mourn because we've lost someone that we love. We should put ourselves in their place and understand the gathering that's now happening on the other side of the veil. You know, I like that, and I think there's hints to this kind of stuff going on in the Old Testament, but it's just not as direct as in the revelations of the Restoration. And so I think anytime we see oblique references like this, I think it's good to point those out. Uh, But Man, I really do think if this was edited by Mormon from Book of Mormon times, I think Mormon would probably do exactly what you're doing, Bryce. He would he would really emphasize that. So I appreciate you pointing that out. That's really a super important stuff. 
Now, after that, after Abraham dies, we get to the story of Isaac and Rebekah having children. And Rebekah is going to get pregnant with twins. And as they struggle inside of her, she's going to receive a tremendous revelation about these two. Right, Mike? Yeah, I really do think this is another miracle birth. I mean, we have this idea that she's barren. So in verse 21, it says that she's barren. And then the children struggled within her. And then we get a series of what I call a visionary experience or a revelation, but also a series of puns. And remember, to the ancients, the more times you had wordplay, the more levels of wordplay, the more sacred it is, the more holy it is. So we have lots of wordplay happening here. So go to verse 22. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. So now we know this is the kind of woman she is. And she's also connected to a man who hangs out at the well of the living one who is seeing me. So she's a visionary. And the Lord said unto her, and my take on this is, I think she's seeing God. I know it doesn't say that, but that's what I'm going to go with. The Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out all red like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. Now that's going to be a multi-level pun. We've got the word Adomi, which is red, but it's also a pun on the word for Edom. If you vowel point Edom just differently, you can get Adam or you can get Edom. And one way to read Adam is he's coming from the earth. And so Admoni or the word Edom can mean red. It's a pun on that word. And then we get this word for hairy, which is a pun on the word seer, which is like the headquarters of the Edomites. The Edomites are going to be the descendants of Esau. So in one sense, this is an etiological tale. This is a tale to explain where Edom comes from and how they're related to the Israelites. But on the other hand, this is a story of two brothers. Now, no, remember that the elder is going to serve the younger. So and Rebecca knew that. That's so significant yes. that Rebecca knew that Jacob was going to be the birthright son. She's told from the very beginning, the birthright, she's going to love her sons. I know she loves her sons, but Rebecca is going to know that Esau will serve Jacob. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really big deal. We're going to see that come up in a bit too. And so uh, his birth is another pun. So what I mean by that is we've got some wordplay happening. So let's get to that. Um, after that came his brother out and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was Yaakov or Jacob. And Isaac was three score years when she bare them. And then that word for Yaakov or Jacob is a pun of a heel because Akev is the word for heel and Yaakov it's stemming from this root, and it can mean a lot of different things, but one of the things it can mean is like he will grab the heel, but also could be connected to protection. We have these really interesting old texts that talk about Ta'akov El, may El protect, and it's a name that is churned up several times in different texts over a wide area, and so the name Jacob is in origin, it could be a plea for divine protection of the newly born. If you think about Jacob's life, it's appropriate for this man who has to live his entire life in the shadow of danger. Much of his life is in this really difficult circumstance. And so it's also this idea of he's going to replace. If you go to Genesis 27, 
verse 36. This is after Jacob gets the blessing and Esau doesn't. This is later, but this is when Esau says, is he not rightly named Yaakov or Jacob? If you look at that footnote, it's supplanter. Supplanter, one who replaces, takes the place of. And so this is a multi-level pun. But what we have here is the roots of these two peoples, because the Israelites are going to come from Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And it says in verse 27 that Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man living in tents. Oh, Halim. Now, I can always remember for me the Hebrew word for tent, because the word tent is ohel, and I'm not a camper. So you can figure out why I can remember that word, if that has any meaning for you. But I love the word for tent in Hebrew. And so Jacob was a plain man living in tents, and that word for plain is tom, and that's connected to the Hebrew conception of complete. A lot of times the translators in the Hebrew Bible will say so-and-so was perfect, and that is from that word tom, and it doesn't mean perfect in the concept that we think of it as Westerners. That word for perfect means to be finished. It means to be done, or I like one rendition is to have received the ordinances or to come into the place of God. And so when it says plain man, it's even right there in the footnote, 27b, whole, complete, perfect, simple. That's the kind of man that Jacob is. And if you remember the edict that El Shaddai gave in chapter 17, in fact, let's just read this. Let's go to Genesis 17 really quick to look at what El Shaddai says to Abraham. Verse one, Abraham was 90 and 9, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am El Shaddai, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And that's the same concept. It's this concept of be complete. And this is what Jesus is going to do in Matthew 5, where he wants us to be the teleoi, the ones that are completed. It could be rendered, walk with me and I will take you to perfection. Exactly. That's the destination. It's not the journey. Walk with me and we will get you to perfection because I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you there. So I think that's really cool. I would definitely highlight that. I would highlight that footnote. If I was teaching a gospel doctrine lesson, I would pause there and, and talk about who is Jesus? What's his nature? What does it mean to be perfect? Because I think there's some tension there in our culture versus what the text is saying. So I think that's really good. Yeah. Now, there's one more symbolism here with Jacob grabbing his heel. Do you go back to the birthright, go back to the Abrahamic responsibility. It is Abraham's responsibility to influence the world, to make the Lord's name known in all the world. And here we see Jacob reaching out to Esau and grabbing him. Do you see the symbolism? That's pretty cool. I mean, I'm going to take the gospel to all of Esau. I'm going to take the gospel to all the world because Esau's going to kind of go astray from the covenant. But I'm going to go reach out to him and grab him. And that's what Israel should be doing today, is reaching out and grabbing everyone else and making the Lord's name known. So there's one more beautiful image of that grabbing of his ankle. Yeah. And and by the way, before we move on, just to nerd out on history, quick geek out moment, the Edomites are going to be east of Israel, and they're going to be hostile. Uh, It was a pretty much a geographic reality that there was hostility between these two peoples. And the western side of the Edomite homeland 
had basically the strategic advantage. It had steep precipices rising to high elevations, way above sea level, and their westerly exposure assured the Edomites that they could get lots of rain or a lot more rain than the Israelites. Therefore, they had better agricultural lands. And then the King's Highway, that's a big trade route. It's going to go east of Israel on the other side of Jordan. And it's one of the main arteries of communication in the ancient world. And it traversed the country from north to south, And this gave it control over the precious caravan trade from India and Southern Arabia, and it connected it with Egypt and Syria and Mesopotamia, and it's going through Edom. So these guys, these Edomites, are going to be subjugated by the monarchy, by the Israelite monarchy. The Israelites are going to have domination over them, especially during the time of David, and they are going to be enemies. So historically, it was King David who first made the Edomites vassals. And meaning that they had to pay tribute to Israel. They were subjugated to them. And the first sign of their rebellion occurred during Solomon's reign. But basically, by the time of Joram, so 849 to 842 BC, they rebel and they come at Israel. And Judah was forced to yield the port of Elat to the Edomites who settled the town. That's the port at the top of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's a beautiful place. If you go visit it, the water's gorgeous. But at 849 is when Israel had to basically give them that territory. So since we're talking about Edom, let me just read this prophecy in the 40th verse of chapter 27 of Genesis. So the context of this, we're going to get to in a minute, is when Isaac gives Esau a blessing. And here's the verse, verse 40. By thy sword shalt thou live, and shalt serve thy brother, and it shall come to pass when thou shalt have dominion, that thou shalt break the yoke from off thy neck. And so a lot of scholars look at that time period when that actually occurred was 849 BC. Now, what does this tell us? I think one of the things it tells us, and a lot of scholars would say this, is that this is probably when these oral traditions were written down because it was an actual reality. Now, you don't have to believe that, but that's just what scholars do is they try to wrestle with these things and they try to grasp, okay, what is the point of this story? Well, the point of this story is more than just getting your birthright blessing. One of the points is, what does this mean politically in the time period of the people that lived in the Bible? And politically, the Edomites were enemies. And so we're trying to establish boundaries and to understand the relationship between these two cultures. And they have similar languages. And I think the question they're trying to answer is, why do they talk like us? Why do they seem like us? And the answer would have been, oh, well, we have this really awesome story from the patriarchs. They actually come from us and we're brethren, just We've been separated over time. And so that's important, I think, to note historically, but maybe not necessarily important to cover in a gospel doctrine lesson that you're teaching. But I just wanted to make sure that we hit those points before we move on. But one of the great lessons to point out, especially if you're teaching youth, is the selling of the birthright. Yes. Because in a moment of weakness, he's going to not care about a blessing that later on in his life he will care about but can't have because of the weakness of this moment. He will shed what we call Esau tears. And I would plead with the youth to avoid the Esau tears. So many people, they get caught up in the emotion of the moment and they give up a blessing that later in their life they will want to claim. Now, we believe in repentance. We do. But sometimes there are blessings that are lost because they were given up at a time when I didn't care about them. 
and then later I did care about them. For example, I have a dear friend who did not care about the gospel when he was raising his children. And now that he cares about the gospel, he is having a hard time influencing his children with his current beliefs. Because at a time when he didn't care, he missed an opportunity that now he cares about and that opportunity is lost. These are Esau tears that people cry all the time. So Esau comes in and he's hungry. Now, is he at the point of death? He is not. And future biblical writers will kind of harp on that. In Hebrews, it will say, Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, as if it was their understanding that this was silly, Esau. He was not at the point of death. Now, had he been at the point of death, then what's the point of his birthright? But Esau was not at the point of death. He's hungry, but he's not at the point of death, and he doesn't care about the birthright in this moment. Quick rabbit hole. So it's not in the Bible, and I think it's fragmentary. And you don't have to believe this, but in some extra biblical texts, we actually get Esau having a reason for not wanting it. And his reason is connected to what's called the book of Jasher, chapter 27. And to be short in speaking, Esau is stalking this guy named Nimrod and who, according to tradition, Nimrod had this garment of power, which somehow he was able to acquire through killing people. And he got it in this garment is kind of traced back to Father Adam out of the Garden of Eden. And so there's this tradition in antiquity of this garment that had this power and that Nimrod had it. And Esau knows if I get it, I can have dominion. So he literally kills, he kills him. He kills Nimrod. And it's this huge, it's drawn out. You can read the story, but he goes through this uh, great battle and he's totally weak and he's kind of beat up. It's kind of like the wounded warrior coming back and he's just like, breathing heavy. And he's like, he's finally got it. And then he realizes, what's the point of a birthright? I have something better. And I think sometimes, isn't that like when you talk about the imitation where Satan tries to trick you to make you think- I don't care about God's birthright. Right. I have man's power. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, the, I've got the imitation. I don't need this. Now, is this historical? Is this correct? Guys, I have no idea. I don't know. But it's interesting that the Jewish people thinking about these things, there's all this extra biblical discussion because they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to say, okay, what does this mean, right? Anyway, just an interesting little quick rabbit hole. But again, the point is he despises what was the right way to do things, the right way to have the power he should have had, but despised because he wanted a different imitation power. So he comes in, he's not at the point of death, he's hungry, and he sells his birthright. He doesn't care about it, so he just sells it. Now, later, when the birthright is given to Jacob, listen to what Esau says. In verse 36 of chapter 27, he comes in and says, as Mike has talked about, is he not rightly named Jacob? He supplanted me, for he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. He didn't understand the connection between the blessing and the birthright. And yet he says, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? See, he wants a blessing from Isaac. Now he wants the blessing. But because of his previous neglect and uncaring, he can't have the blessing. And because he can't have that blessing, he cries out in verse 38, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also. O my father, 
and Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He wept at the loss of the blessing, but the blessing was his. He let go of the blessing when he didn't care about it. I also like verse 34 where it says, with a great and exceeding bitter cry. Yeah. Esau tears. Now listen to how that's presented in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17, the point is, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Those are the Esau tears that I have watched way too many people cry. I didn't value a blessing when I had it. And now it's gone. And I wish I had it. How many youth in this church, in the thrilling, worldly, exciting, youthful years when the world is at their fingertips and it's so enticing and they don't value, say, a mission or they don't value marriage in the temple or they don't value raising their children with the standards of the gospel. And so they don't claim those blessings in those moments. And then years later, when they seek for the blessing. When they long for the blessing of being able to influence their children with the blessings of the gospel, or they long for the experiences of a mission, or they long for the blessings of a temple marriage, they cry out with Esau tears. Now, don't get me wrong. We can repent and we can claim blessings. No one is going to forego a blessing because they ran out of time. We do believe in repentance. But that being said, There are missed opportunities for which we will cry Esau tears. I've seen people bitter against the church at the very moment when their children were young and impressionable. And then later when their bitterness goes away and they've softened and they long for the blessings of the church, their children are bitter towards the church. Because in that moment when they had that opportunity to influence and teach, they despised the blessing at that moment. And later when they want the blessing, the opportunity has passed. So I would just plead with you as teachers, as parents, as grandparents, as you meet with young people, help them understand the significance and help them avoid the shedding of Esau tears. Don't despise a blessing when it's within your reach that you will later long for but have missed the opportunity for it. Now, I know that life is—I understand mortality, and I understand the probationary state, and we should grant ourselves a probationary state, and we should learn from our mistakes— but we should also be wise and avoid as many mistakes as we possibly can. And Esau tears is something I have watched way too many people I care about shed. Yeah, they're real. So Esau is going to despise his birthright. That's kind of the closeout of the 25th chapter. And then we get this vision that Isaac has where the Lord appears to him and tells him not to go down into Egypt, but to stay in verse 3 
in this land, and I will be with thee, and I will bless thee. Verse 4, I'm going to make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. This is some repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. I will give unto thy seed all these countries. That's verse 4. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge. And then it says in verse 6 that Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him of his wife. And he said... She is my sister. Boy, this sure sounds familiar, right? Yeah, so this is a triplet. We've done this before. So to remind everybody, in the 12th chapter, verses 10 through 20, we had this story. In the 20th chapter, verses 1 through 18, we have this story, and it pops up again in the 26th chapter, verses 6 through 14. So we are going to skip it because we covered it back with chapter 12. So we put this in the show notes as well, that the Philistines are having this strife with him over water and they're stopping up the wells. And there's a lot of scholars that say that the Philistines being in the text in Genesis 26 is anachronistic because the Philistines don't really come to the Levant until the closeout of the Bronze Age, which is around 1200 BC. And this is 1900 BC-ish, somewhere in that space. So we're about 700 years off. Now, there's other scholars that disagree. So rather than us talk about it in the podcast, we put both their takes in the show notes and you can read it for yourself. Um, from my reading of scholarship, I think most scholars are saying, hey, this is an anachronism. I'm okay with it because if I was a, a scribe or a prophet or a poet and I lived during the time period when we're fighting with the Philistines and there's these oral traditions of the patriarchs fighting with enemies, I'm going to say, goodness, that kind of sounds like the Philistines. So I'm okay with that. It's not going to really change anything, but just know that there's this stuff going on. In fact, there's even some riffing on that word for strife. If you look in verse 20 and 21, the names of the wells, and this even in the footnotes, have to do with strife and strife over water. So the image I want to put in your mind is this idea of Isaac, and he's in the midst of this strife over water. If you look at verse 23 of chapter 26, he goes up from thence unto Beersheba, And this is a doublet in the text. The naming of Beersheba was back in Genesis 21, 21 through 31. Now Beersheba is going to be found and discovered and named again. This is another rendering of this story. And I want to go quickly through it to look at this with what I'm going to call our temple lens. So the well of the seven, that's Beersheba. And notice verse 24, the Lord appears to him and he's promised his seed to be multiplied. Verse 25, he builds an altar. He calls upon the name of the Lord, and he puts his tent there. Now, tent can be a metaphor. Remember, we don't have the temple constructed yet. So sometimes in the scriptures, especially when they don't have access to the temple, tent can sometimes mean that. I don't know if it does, but it could. Why? Well, because he's talking to the Lord. Look at verse 28. He's having this strife with the Philistines, and he wants to make a covenant. So they want to make an oath in verse 28 and make a covenant of peace in verse 29, that they will do no hurt and that he is sent away in peace, and he's blessed of the Lord. And so what do they do in verse 30? They have a feast, they eat and drink. Verse 31, they swear to one another, and they have peace. And it says in verse 33, Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. My take on those verses, basically verses 23 through 32, I mean, look at what we have. We have the well of the seven, or the well of the oath, We have eating and drinking in the context of a covenant meal and covenant making. We have altar construction, and we have Isaac seeing the Lord. I think this is all code speak, for we've got some temple stuff going on, but it's also this idea of Isaac being a man of peace. There's all this strife going on with water, 
We're going to come back to that later. But the way out through the chaos is this making of a covenant. Now, think about the repetition here. Abraham found peace at a tree. Isaac finds peace at a tent, at a temple where he communed with God. Jacob will call it Bethel because he'll see a ladder that goes to heaven and he'll commune with God and call it Bethel. That repetition and the Latter-day Saints building temples where we can commune with God and that the ladder can go back and forth, that's a significant pattern. The people of the covenant always seek sacred places to commune with God. Call them Beersheba, call them Bethel. Whether there's a tree there literally or not, there's always a sacred place where people of the covenant seek to talk to God. I mean, just when you were talking, I just thought, well, we have Moray and Moriah, the pun and the riffing on that, because Moray is the place of the oracle, the place of the visionary experience. So it's all those things. And the words, they're, they're flexible, and they're kind of teaching that same motif, that same theme. And so I just want to say this before we get into 27, Bryce. It's a really interesting, but also a troubling set of verses. And so if we read this through the lens of Peshat, like what's the literal reading of this, it can cause a lot of problems because we're let in on this idea that Rebecca knows that Jacob is the birthright son, but her husband, apparently, according to chapter 27, is not aware of this. And because he's not aware of this, we have this very interesting set of verses where she's going to come to her son and she's going to have him dress in the robes of his brother Esau and then get the blessing. And then he's going to exit the stage and Esau is going to come on the stage and he's going to approach his father and he's going to ask for the blessing. And his father is going to tell Esau, well, I already gave the blessing to your brother. And then because of this, Esau is going to get really upset. I mean, if you go to verse 41, it says, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will slay my brother Jacob. Meaning that I'm not going to do anything while my dad's alive, but when he dies, I'm going to take him out. And so chapter 27 ends with Rebecca taking her son Jacob and saying, listen, Esau is going to kill you. You've got to go. And so she actually sends him back to Haran to go back to her family. And that is where in the next few chapters, Jacob is going to find his wives. Jacob will be practicing plural marriage. I remember reading this as a young man, and I remember thinking, this is just so confusing. So Jacob gets the blessing through deception, and that's somehow okay. And I remember just not knowing what to do with it and just kind of sitting in confusion. I remember even asking in Sunday school when I was a kid, my teacher about this, and and we just kind of looked at each other like, I don't know, it was just one of those things. Didn't have an answer. So I don't read 27 and I don't teach it from a Peshat perspective. I don't read this as, hey. Here's what actually happened. Yeah. And the reason why I don't is because it causes so many logical problems, especially when you're talking to children. You're like, wait, yeah, he lied and he got a blessing from God. And you put all these literal things up there and the whole thing collapses. So I'm going to read chapter 27 differently. I'm going to read it basically from a Sod rendering and a Remez rendering. So remember, Sod is what does this teach me about God and the temple? And Remez is what's the allegorical significance of this? But I think a Peshat reading, we have to do that reading to know what's going on. So 
I want to just share some things that come out of the Institute Manual. And this is just the literal reading and how to deal with the ambiguities of the text. There's four points. The first point is, as the record in Genesis now reads, there's little option but to conclude that Rebekah and Jacob deliberately deceived Isaac and that Jacob explicitly lied to his father. Rebekah and Jacob believed the deception was necessary because Isaac obviously favored Esau. Joseph Smith, however, taught that certain errors had crept into the Bible through ignorant translators, careless transcribers, or designing and corrupt priests. That's teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 327. For example, a comparison of the early chapters of Genesis with the fuller accounts revealed to the prophet, now that we've read in the book of Moses, show that much has been lost. It is possible that the story of Jacob's obtaining the birthright also lost much or had been changed. These changes could then explain the contradictions. And as an experiment, I would invite you to read the King James Version of Cain and Abel. And then go read the JST version of Cain and Abel. Now, if that pattern holds true, then I wonder what a full JST of this story would do to change it. So if that pattern is an example, then this story of Jacob and Rebekah deceiving Isaac to get the blessing, there's got to be something that's not being told here. This is not the Lord's way. And in a weird way, Bryce, I'm totally okay if Joseph Smith's doing the translation and he sees this and he's like, yeah, that's good enough. I'm totally okay with that. And I know that sounds really weird. Because he sees the bigger picture. Right, right. And I'm totally okay with it. But I, I want you to know I'm not okay with deception. I'm not telling teenagers out there, make sure to lie to your dad. I don't think that's the moral, right? Now, I will say this before we go on. Jacob tricks his dad. And the rest of Genesis is Jacob getting tricked the rest of Genesis. And it's almost like the authors are inviting you to think about that concept, but they don't tell you. There's no Mormon sitting there with his pen saying, and thus we see. The authors are asking you to figure that out. But just think about that for a second. Is there a little bit of karma going on here, a little bit of cosmic karma that the authors are inviting us to consider? Now, the second thing, another option, Rebecca knew by personal revelation that Jacob was to be the son of the covenant. That's in Genesis 25, 22, and 23. Jacob reluctantly gave in to his mother's wishes after she told him that she would take the responsibility for what they were about to do. A third option. Although the early patriarchs and their wives were great and righteous men and women who eventually were exalted and perfected, this fact does not mean that they were perfect in every respect while in mortality. If this story is correct, as we read in Genesis 27, Isaac may have been temporarily short-sighted in favoring Esau, or Rebekah may have had insufficient faith in the Lord to let him work his will and therefore undertook a plan of her own to ensure that the promised blessings would come to pass. These shortcomings do not lessen their later greatness and their eventual perfection. And then finally, the fourth option. Whatever the explanation for the circumstances surrounding the reception of the blessing, one thing is clear. Priesthood holders are given the keys to bind and loose on earth and have the action validated in heaven. Once Isaac learned of the deception, he could have revoked the blessing and given it to Esau. Instead, he told Esau, quote, yea, and he shall be blessed. That's Genesis 27, verse 33. Later, when Jacob was prepared to leave for Padamaram to escape Esau's wrath, Isaac clearly gave him the blessing of Abraham. That's in Genesis 28, 3 and 4. An additional proof that Jacob received the blessing meant for him and that Isaac confirmed it upon him. 
Thus, if the Genesis record is correct as it now is, Jacob, like others, received a call and a promise of eventual blessings because of his potential and in spite of his weaknesses. Like anyone, he had then to live worthily in order to obtain the promised blessings. So with that literal reading of the text, those are some possible ways that you can look at it. From time to time, I've had people ask questions, and I just admit guys, this is very troubling. This is the Bible, and it doesn't always make perfect sense. And so I think those four things give us some freedom to have some flexibility with the text as to how literal it is or to even how fragmented it is. There's just a lot of things we don't know. So I think that's a really good way to start. But if we stop there, I think we miss the beauty of chapter 27. And so we're going to present some ways to read it that may help us see this as a pattern or as a type or a figure for something greater. So my take on Genesis 27 is that this is drenched with temple imagery and ascension imagery. And I'm going to approach reading Genesis 27 through the lens of a temple and through a lens of the Book of Breathings. Now, the Book of Breathings is a group of texts. It's not like it's in one book, but it's a collection of texts that the Egyptians had to help them to leave this life when they die and go to the gods or to go and and transcend into the next life and have a successful afterlife. And so in this narrative, Jacob is going to be the one that is standing in the presence of God and he wants to ascend. And his father, Isaac, is going to be the one calling out. And in the Book of Mormon, if you read either chapter three, that chapter is doing a lot of the things that Genesis 27 is doing. And it's this ascension narrative. It's a temple text. And I think Ether 3 is a better rendition than Genesis 27, but I'm trying to flesh this out because for those of you that have been endowed, you'll see things in here that I think have relevance to us. And I'm going to geek out a little bit on some of the words and some of the images that are portrayed in Genesis 27. It's going to start right out of the gate in Genesis 27.1, where it says, It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim that he could not see, that he called Esau his eldest and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. Now remember, it's not Esau talking. It's Jacob. Jacob, in the garb of Esau, says to his father, Hineni. Behold, here am I in English. That's the same phrase that Isaac says to Abraham at Mount Moriah in the binding when Isaac said to his father, Hineni, here am I. And it's another but a different story of a loving father and the near loss of his beloved son. So there's a lot of things happening here. There's a loss of a son. There's a loving father calling out to his son, and this is happening in Genesis 22, and this is happening right out of the gate of the 27th chapter of Genesis. So if you were a a member of an audience in antiquity that was a Hebrew speaker and you heard Genesis 27 read to you, it would immediately bring to mind the image at Mount Moriah when Isaac said to his father, Hineni, here am I. Okay, next we read that the father had eyes that were dim. So in verse one, it mentions that Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. And I'm going to say this, I look at this as his eyes being veiled. In other words, there's this cloud between Isaac and Jacob. He can't see him. He can't see him clearly. Think of Paul's phrase where Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, like we don't totally see the other side. So then we get the mother, Rebecca. 
She talks to her son and she prepares the meal that will be provided for Isaac. And so she goes and she gets Jacob. And it says in verse 15, And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck. And she gave the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And he came in unto his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, who art thou, my son? And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. So we have him with the garments of his brother on. He's approaching his father. The father is going to touch his hands and his neck. Uh, obviously foreshadowed in verse 16. There's an exchange in verse 18 asking him who he is, and he identifies himself. And then we get to verse 21. Isaac said to Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And so if you go to verse 22, Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy, as his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Art thou my very son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat. And he brought him wine, and he did drink. So now we're eating and drinking. In the context of a temple, think about what we have. We have the son approaching the father. There's an exchange of identifiers. He's touching his hands. They're eating and drinking. Then we get to verse 26. And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be every one that curseth thee, and blessed be every one that blesseth thee. And so right after the blessing, the narrator writes in verse 30, As soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, Jacob was yet scarce gone from the presence of Isaac, and Esau his brother came in from his hunting. So when Esau finds out that his brother got the blessing, He's very upset. In fact, we've talked about the shedding the tears of Esau in verse 34 and verse 38. He clearly weeps bitterly, and Esau is very sad. So what can we conclude from this? A couple things. In the context of this deception text where he's telling him that he's Esau, we have some very provocative images that are connected to Ether chapter 3 and the brother of Jared approaching the Lord. We have him coming near in verse 21. We have the father feeling after him in the 22nd verse. In the 23rd verse, he takes him by the hand. And then in verses 26 and 27, we have the imagery from the city of Enoch. We have those promises that are found in Moses 7, that the people of the city of Enoch will come to those that are on the earth and they will kiss each other and they will fall upon their necks and embrace. And not only that, but if you look in verse 27, it says that he's smelling him, like they're really close. 
This image of the father embracing his son and smelling him is almost as if he's taking in his essence. And Hugh Nibley said this about the embrace. He said, the embrace is a perfect representation or metaphor for the word atonement. The word atonement appears only once in the New Testament, but 127 times in the Old Testament. In the other standard works of the church, atonement, including related terms, atone, atoned, etc., appear 44 times, but only three times in the Doctrine and Covenants and twice in the Pearl Great Price. The other 39 times are in the Book of Mormon. This puts the Book of Mormon in the milieu of the Old Testament rites before the destruction of Solomon's temple. So what we've talked about often, first Israelite temple worship. For after that, the ark and the covering no longer existed, but the Holy of Holies was still called the Beit HaKeperet. It has often been claimed that the Book of Mormon cannot contain the fullness of the gospel since it does not have the temple ordinances. As a matter of fact, they are everywhere in the book if we know where to look for them. And the dozen or so discourses on the atonement in the Book of Mormon are replete with temple imagery. And then he goes on. We put the rest of this in the show notes. But the point that Hugh Nibley is making is that the embrace is the heart of what it means to come into Christ and even the words embrace or embracing has everything to do with the word atonement. Hugh Nibley goes on where he talks about the Sensen text, the book of breathings. Now, these breathings texts that have to do with the funerary rites of the Egyptians, part of the, the idea of Sensen is this idea of breathing, but it's also related to kiss. And he says this, that these ideas bid us to consider the broader and more venerable ritual background of the word. The rite set forth in the earliest coronation drama. So when the kings were coronated, they had rituals that were associated with their coronation. And Hugh Nibley says that they culminated when the new king unites himself with the royal court and mingles or sensen, like this idea of their breathing, with the gods. And this mingling had to do with the father embracing the son. So we have an embrace and we have it mixed with breathing. According to Hugh Nibley, the way he's reading this really old material, he sees this connection. And so what I'm trying to do is put Genesis 27 in that space of antiquity. Whoever is writing the story and giving it to us, they know the Egyptian rites, and they know what it means to ascend. And they're placing Jacob in a situation where he is the one, the son, who was ascending to the status of the father. And I would say if we take this and we overlay it with Ether chapter three, it's also a message about the temple, but it's also a message about us. We are Jacob or we are the brother of Jared. And it is our privilege to be ones to come unto the father, to come as it says in verse 26, and kiss me, my son. And he came near and he kissed him and he smelled the smell of his raiment and he blessed him. And to me, if I look at verse 28 and 29, those blessings are very powerful blessings because verse 28 has to do with fertility. I know it's talking about the fertility of the earth, but I think we could also say that this is about Jacob's fertility. Verse 29 is the promise of invulnerability, that people will serve him and that nations that attack him will be cursed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the promises of Abraham, fertility, seed, and the promise of invulnerability, the promise of protection. And so to me, that's a fascinating way to read Genesis 27. Now, before we leave Genesis 27, I just want to talk a little bit about backing up and looking at the big picture. 
And so I'm going to talk a little bit about archetypes or figures or images. Now, this is not in the show notes. This is not my own idea, but it's an image that's just powerful. A lot of this is coming from Friedrich Weinerab. He wrote a book called Roots of the Bible. And so I'm going to try to describe it to you. Imagine or take out a piece of paper and just do this. Draw three circles on the paper in the form of a equilateral triangle. So, you know, you have two circles on the bottom and you have one on top and they're equidistant from each other. And in the first circle on the right, write light. And then on the circle, the bottom left, write water. And then the circle in the top, in the center, write earth. And if you draw those circles and you write those words, then you can start painting ideas around these circles. And I think this is how the creation narrative is told. You see, the creation narrative is told in two sets of three. So on day one of creation, if you look in Genesis 1, 1 through 5, it's all about light and dividing the light. And then if you go to the next day of creation, and that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we're talking about water and separating the water. And then if you go to Genesis 1, verses 10 through 13, we're talking about earth and seed and life. And those are the first three days. But then when you go to day four, we're back to the bottom circle on the right, and that's light. And that's Genesis 1, 14 through 19. Not only are we talking about light, but we're talking about stars, and we're talking about the moon and the sun. Then if you go to the next circle on the left, we're in day five. Go to Genesis 1, 20 through 23. We're talking about life coming out of the waters. And then finally, Genesis 1, 24 through 31, we're back to the circle on the top. That's about earth. And we're talking about cattle and we're talking about fertility and we're talking about man. Weinreb makes the point when he outlines the creation narrative this way, that this tripart structure of the creation is actually superimposed upon the entire text of Genesis and that the patriarchs are the embodiment of these ideas. And so in the bottom right, where we're talking about light and the moon and the stars and those kinds of things, if we look at Genesis 15, verse 17, we see that in the context of Abraham coming to God, I mean, he, he talks to him quite a few times, but in Genesis 15, at the end of the text, he's getting the covenant and he's getting the promise of the land. We read in verse 17 that when everything is dark, the text says, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passes between those pieces. I mean, what does that mean? Well, Weinreb makes the contention that this is fire and imagery, brilliant imagery. And I would say, this is the God of Israel. And the God of Israel is passing between these pieces in brilliant light. And the way it's described is Abraham being associated with brilliance, incredible light. Now, I would also say that it's so interesting to me that Abraham is the one that does the stuff on astronomy, the stuff that we covered back with Abraham. And so, you could write Abraham, his name in that circle, as the embodiment of day one and day four of creation. Next, go to the circle on the left. We have water. Well, what do we have when we have Isaac? Well, Isaac is one who is definitely associated with water. For example, we just talked about how his wife was approached by the servant, and the servant was able to get her permission to marry Isaac and a lot of this was in the context of water, like she's watering the camels. But then when you go to Genesis 26, you have the entire narrative of Isaac's visionary experience, but it's also set in the context of strife 
and waters. Remember, we're back to the naming of Beersheba, the well of the seven. So we have this water, we have this strife, and we talked about this a lot before, but water a lot of times is a symbol of chaos. Now, I want you to imagine that you live in ancient Israel, in the first temple, before it's destroyed, before Nephi, and you would watch the creation drama play out, and you would watch day one through day six of creation, and you would see the story of Adam and Eve, and I would contend that you would see these stories, the stories of the patriarchs, or something like this portrayed. And Vinerib talks about this, this separation between the two circles on the bottom, that the audience would be separated and the men would be on the right side and they're associated with light and fire and Abraham and the women would be on the left side and they're associated with water and they're associated with that aspect of creation and front and center would be an altar representing the earth or the earth in its four quarters. And you can kind of see where I'm going with this. We're going to put Jacob in that top circle and Jacob is going to be the continuation of these elements of creation. And so what do, what do I mean by that? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 1, 10 through 13 or 24 through 31, we're talking about the earth. We're talking about the land, creation. And so this is stuff that we're going to talk about in the future because Jacob's story is yet to be told. We haven't covered it yet, but I'll give you a couple of previews. Jacob's life is going to be one where he's in great danger. And the bounty of the earth will be seen in Jacob's life. Much of his life will be seen through the lens of fertility. There's whole chapters on fertility of animals specifically, and many chapters that will be read through the lens of the lack of or the production of the fruit of the earth, the production of crops, the bounty of the earth. And when I say this, the continuation of Jacob's life is Joseph. Now, what I find fascinating about all three circles, every one of these has a son that goes on the hero's journey that has to go down into the depths before they can come out. So at the bottom right, where we have light and Abraham, you have the sacrifice of Isaac. You see, Abraham's son was Isaac, and Isaac had to go down into the depths, literally to be sacrificed and then to come out. And then on the bottom left circle, we have water. And what do we have there? Well, we have Isaac. And Isaac sends his son Jacob away. Now, I know it's Rebekah sending him away. And Rebekah is the mover of this circle. Rebekah is the embodiment of the feminine principle. She's the driver in these stories. I mean, if we read the stories of the birthright, it's Rebekah who's doing this. Rebekah is the one who gets the vision. Rebekah is the one that tells Jacob what to do, and she's the one that sends him away. And so Jacob goes on the hero's journey at the instruction of his mother. So we have God communicating to Abraham in the bottom right. We have God communicating to Rebekah in the bottom left. And what do we have in the, in the top? Is the son of Jacob goes on the hero's journey. He goes into the depths of Mitzrayim, Egypt. Mitzrayim is Egypt in Hebrew. I just love saying that word. He goes into the depths. Joseph does. But he comes out and he is the embodiment of life and he restores the family through his sacrifice. And it's all tied up in the seeds. The seeds are everything in this text. And the seeds and the threshing floor is the embodiment of the Holy of Holies. You see, coming into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, is coming into this fertility image. And we'll see this over and over again. We're going to see this in Samuel. We're going to see this in Isaiah. We see it in the Savior's instructions to the Nephites. 
We see it in Joel. We see it in so many places. And by the time we're done with this year's podcast on the Old Testament, we will see images of the first Israelite temple all over the place. And for those of you that have been in doubt, it should inspire us to go back to the temple and consider the promises there and see the connection between the promises that were given to us in 2022 to the promises given to the patriarchs and to the prophets and to the things alluded to in the temple. And so to conclude, these images are archetypes. They're figures or they're images. And I think if we read the text this way, that bottom left-hand circle doesn't seem so weird. In other words, you kind of need Rebecca to play the role of the person pushing the story forward, at least from Weinreb's perspective. Weinreb talks about how the water is the feminine principle. It's the divine feminine. And we can't get to Jacob until we do the light and then we do the water. And the water story is Rebecca's story. And so if we read it this way through the lens of the temple and we read it as an ascension narrative, it makes perfect sense that it's Rebecca who is the one that is moving the plot along. And the image that's going to end is the image of the embrace between Joseph and his brethren. You see, that's the Savior embracing those that have wronged him. And so it's a very Christian book if we read it with the right lens. And so we'll see these images come up again and again throughout the Old Testament, but I just wanted to make sure that I was able to hopefully illustrate some ideas that can make Genesis 27 seem, seem holy. To read and see Genesis 27 as something sacred and holy, something that is actually inspiring and not necessarily troubling. Yeah. So... However it actually happened, the right person got the blessing. And the reason we say the right person did isn't because he was better, isn't because he was this person's favorite or he outsmarted. The right person got the blessing because that was the person that was going to do the work of the covenant. He got the blessings to enable him to carry out Abraham's covenant. Jacob is the right person because Jacob's going to do the work. Just like Jacob was reaching out and holding on to Esau's foot, it's the symbol of what he's going to do. Jacob is going to reach out and influence the world. Jacob will produce a son that goes down and completely changes Egypt and influences the world and saves the world. So I don't know about the deception. I don't know how it happened, but I know that the right person got the covenant because he was willing to do the work. And I would suggest that this is a symbol of the Latter-day Saints. We have been given the covenant, not because we're better, not because we're favored, but because we have accepted the responsibility to do the work, that we are the ones that are going to reach out and grab Esau by the heel and make the Lord's name known in all the world. May we be that people. Thanks for joining us. We are going to leave you with that until next week when we cover Genesis 28 through 33, which is Jacob leaving his family and then his return. Thanks for sharing your time with us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.